Welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm Nadia Popovich. This February, Science and the City teamed up with the Story Collider, a science storytelling group to bring true personal stories of science to a Manhattan stage. Running with the theme of science teachers, we invited six storytellers to tell their personal tales of a time when science affected their lives, inside the classroom or out. Over the next two weeks, we bring you some of those stories. My teacher was named Mrs. Murphy, and we called her Bunhead Behind Her Back. And they're like high-fiving this guy over my zipper. This one Sunday, I needed a lobster. Today, you'll hear Kelly Vaughn, who has been teaching middle school science and occasionally writing about it for about 11 years. Find out why teaching middle schoolers may be harder than you think, even harder when crustaceans are involved. At the same time, our friends at the Story Collider will be presenting a second science teacher story through their own podcast series. Find architect Ed Gavigan talking about a difficult time in his life and how it came back to him during a chance encounter with an unusual science teacher on the subway. Visit www.storycollider.org or find them on iTunes. But now, over to Vaughn. About a little more than 10 years ago, I was a new teacher. I was teaching eighth grade science in the South Bronx. And I had a chronic case of the Sundays. The Sundays is when you say yes to brunch, even though you have 100 lab reports in a pile on your desk still waiting to be graded. And then at brunch, you order a Bloody Mary, but it doesn't do anything about the tickle of anxiety that started the day before and is growing really rapidly into full-fledged dread. So I had a bad case. About 4 p.m. Sunday, it would be perfectly obvious to me that the Earth was turning on its axis and Monday was coming, and at 8 something the next morning, 30, 13-year-olds were going to walk into my classroom and I was going to have to teach them something. So I'd sit down on my computer, and I'd start hammering out lesson plans. And no sooner would the ink be dry on the last question mark of the last question of the last homework assignment, than I'd look back over what I'd done, and I would realize that absolutely none of it would work if I did not have 32 medium-sized styrofoam balls, 200 pipe cleaners, and this like strange kind of artist's plaster. And so, I would start Googling, like, where can I get this stuff? And I'd realize, and you have to understand, I had realized this every week previously, that all of these places close early on Sundays. So I had about 45 minutes before, like, the crystal carriage turned back into a pumpkin. So this one Sunday, I needed a lobster. (laughs) I had... When I first started teaching, they'd handed me this green and white spiral-bound book of New York State standards uh, and three thin blue textbooks, and they'd said, you know, this is what you should teach. And I didn't know anything about creating curriculum, so I opened the book, and it's like a grand tour of living things. You have this phylum and that phylum and this family and that family. We'd done Nidarians, we'd done Platyhelminthes, and You know, we'd done all the really small things that live in the water or underground or in your gut, and we'd finally made it to arthropods. Arthropods, uh, in case you need a refresher, um, have jointed appendages and segmented bodies, and they have an exoskeleton. 
Um, and there are things like insects and spiders and um, crustaceans. And so how was I going to bring crustaceans to life for my urban eighth graders? Just to give you a sense of perspective, I had once faced down an entire eighth grade class that insisted that it was very obvious that because mice can crawl under doorways and through small spaces that they have no bones. <laughs> no bones. And snakes have no bones either for similar reasons. So even though I brought in some pictures of skeletons and you know we cleared that up, I kind of was up against it. And the best part is that they attributed this to their previous year's science teacher. So on the other hand, I spent part of my summers growing up in Maine with my grandparents. And people in Maine know crustaceans. You can like, go to McDonald's and get a lobster roll in Maine. So once a summer or so, my grandfather would get out the, um, the white bibs with like the cartoon lobster and the little special bowls that you put butter, melted butter in. This is a good part of eating lobster. And uh, like the tools that you use to crush those exoskeletons and the, the other tools that you use to hook meat out of the jointed appendages. Um, <laughs> And he'd come home from the, from the store and he'd have like a bag of lobsters and they come and they're alive and they're not really that bright red color and, yet and their claws are bound with these really thick uh, blue rubber bands. And so he'd take a couple out and he'd like put them on the kitchen floor and let them like run around and they'd, they'd wave their little robotic looking claws and you know then he'd drop them into the pot. So, that was what I wanted to give my students. I wanted them to see the robotic arms and to understand a little bit viscerally what it might be like to wear your skeleton on the outside. And maybe years later, if they didn't remember exoskeleton or any of these other vocabulary words, they might kind of take something with them about the differences in living things and maybe even appreciate these creatures a little bit more that are so, so different from ourselves. So that is how I found myself minutes before closing time at a pet store in the West Village <laughs> looking for an aquarium that would be big enough to fit a small lobster but not too heavy when filled with water for me to take on the D train the next day. <laughs> and so finally I find this one. It's like a drum-shaped fishbowl. It has a circular opening at the top. And um, it's made of plastic, and the best part is that it comes with a lid, so this feels promising. And then I, you know, next stop is the supermarket. So I'm looking at this six-foot tank of lobsters, and I'm realizing that I've never actually bought a lobster before. I don't know what the protocol is. So, you know, the guy says to me, like, what can I do for you? And I'm like, okay, so I want the smallest lobster that you have, and I would like to put it in here. And he says, you can't keep a lobster as a pet in there. And I'm like, this is probably my best opportunity to ask for some like general keeping of lobsters advice. But I don't do that. I, um, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm bringing it to school. And then, you know, tomorrow it's going to get eaten at the end of the day. And this is true. I'm a vegetarian, or I was back then. And, but my roommate had a creme brulee torch. So I was like, she'll know what to do. So. <laughs> Uh, so I get, you know, I, I get the lobster into the bowl, and I'm like walking back through the village. I'm, I'm with my boyfriend at the time, and 
you know, it's, it's the pretty, like, West Village. The, it's getting dark. The sun's set. The lights are coming on. And I'm carrying this aquarium. And the water's kind of sloshing back and forth. And the lobster's, like, turning its little swimmerettes, like, trying to stay oriented. And I'm feeling pretty psyched because people are noticing. And New Yorkers aren't going to say anything, but you can tell that they're noticing. And I feel like that New Yorker. Like, I am on a special secret mission. I'm doing something completely ridiculous in public as though it's normal. So. <laughs> You know, I was like getting a little thrill from this. And then we, we get home and I'm feeling really bad for the lobster because it doesn't fit very well in the, in the fishbowl. So I want to give it a little chance to stretch its, its appendages before uh, tomorrow, which you can imagine like having a bunch of eighth graders looking at you all day and then death by boiling is probably going to be kind of stressful. So I get the bottom half of an old like litter box and rinse it out and fill it with water and put the lobster in there, put it on the kitchen floor, and I'm making dinner, and I turn around, and I'm like, this is not going to work. Because my cat is sitting there like, just looking down at the lobster, its ears are all pricked up, and the lobster is sort of swimming forward, and it's following it with its eyes, and the lobster is swimming backwards, and it's following it with its eyes. You can't really tell how lobsters are feeling, but this doesn't seem like a good thing. So I lift it up, and I'm like, okay, we'll put it in the bathroom, shut the door, and then I think, well, why not just put it in the bathtub overnight? Like, you know, a little more space. So the next thing you know, the bathtub's filled with a few inches of cold water. Lobster's in there, seems happier, hard to tell. Um, and we sit down to dinner, and then I'm like, oh, lobsters live in the ocean, and the ocean is salty, so maybe we should put some salt in there to make it like feel more comfortable. So, you know, I'm, I'm aware that table salt is not exactly right. Like, I am a science teacher. But it says sea salt, so there's that. And then, you know, add, I'm like, okay, so then there's the question of, like, how much? And again, I'm a science teacher, so I'm like, I think this has to do with moles, but let's just shake some in. So I'm just shaking salt in there, and then I feel pretty good. And I sit down, and I plan this activity, which, looking back for my first year of teaching, was probably one of my better activities. And I'm like, okay, half the class is going to work on, you know, reading a little about lobsters, about their life cycle, their body parts. Um, you know, they seduce each other with pheromones. There's a dance, and the, the female can actually hang on to the male's sperm packets for like a year. So I figure this will be good. And then the other half will be looking at a real lobster, and then we'll switch. So I get that all set, and then I look in on the lobster one more time, and I feel like this is a pretty good Sunday, and I go to bed. The next morning, 6 a.m., I get up, I'm brushing my teeth, I'm like, oh, the lobster. And I look over in the bathtub, and the lobster is not moving. So I kind of stir the water a little, like, maybe it's just asleep. No. And then I pick the lobster up, and all of its limbs kind of move to one side. The lobster's dead. So I just start crying. I'm crying for the lobster because I'm imagining the lobster probably running out of oxygen is my best guess, and it's surrounded by just white in every direction. It's unfamiliar. It can't grasp onto anything because the bathtub's so smooth, and it's like really trying to get air, and it, it can't get any air, and I just think this is a, a terrible way to die. 
and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm crying because its death is in vain, because now like you can't eat shellfish that has been indefinitely for sitting in your bathtub for an indefinite amount of time. And uh, it didn't get to teach any kids anything about its kind. And, and so that's like really sad. And then I'm crying for myself um, because this, is, this was an, an animal in my care. And even if it was you know, going to die the next day, it still like it wasn't going to die this way. And I just feel responsible. And this is the largest, most animate thing that I have, that's ever died in my care. And then I'm crying for my lesson plan, because let's face it, like these worksheets are not going to fill a whole period. And that period is going to happen really soon. So I just am like going through the motions at this point, like putting on my teacher clothes and making my sandwich. And as I do this, I, I make a decision. I'm bringing the lobster to school, dead or alive. So I get all the ice from my freezer and I fill that little litter box basin up. I put the lobster on top, put the whole thing in a bag, grab like my school stuff and off I go. So I get to school and the lessons go fine. Like it's still pretty impressive. The kids do the worksheets and they learn stuff and they're interested in the lobster. They look at the lobster. But as kids always do, they kind of know what's really going on. So it's like, yo, miss, you killed it, right? Yeah, I killed it, but it didn't die in vain. When I think back on those first couple of years that I was teaching, there's a few moments, it's not just this one, but there's a few moments when, that I think I really gained courage in what I was doing. And you know, when the lobster's dead at 6 a.m. in the morning and you make it work, like nothing else can give you courage like that. And then, you know, also, Whatever I plan, I'm never, ever going to regret taking that extra crazy step to try to make something more real for my students. Thank you. That was Kelly Vaughn speaking at Science and the City and the Story Collider's joint show on February 2nd, 2012. This was recorded in front of a live audience at 92Y Tribeca. Tune in again next week for the second half of our storytelling series, both on Science in the City and the Story Collider. Find more podcasts and events up at www.scienceandthecity.org or send us your feedback at scienceandthecity at nyas.org.